Hey, Apostiage listeners, this is your host, Josh McNall. I hope you're doing well. We're back for another episode at the Frontier of Theology, Culture, and the Church. And I'm really excited in this episode to welcome our first historian to the podcast, Thomas Kidd from Baylor and from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, talking about his new book on Thomas Jefferson. But before we get to him, as always, I want to give a shout out to Oklahoma Wesleyan University. Thank them for sponsoring the podcast. You'll be hearing more from them later. But for now, if you want to go to okwu.edu, you can find out more about Oklahoma Wesleyan. And as always, if you can go to wherever you download this podcast, give us a nice, honest review. It really helps us to get the episode out there. And without any further ado, Thomas Kidd and Thomas Jefferson. This is a biography of a brilliant but troubled person. Thomas Jefferson would seem to need no introduction, yet among the Founding Fathers, he is the greatest enigma and the greatest source of controversy. Time-bound, self-interested men framed the world's most enduring republic on the bedrock of the slave owner, Jefferson's, glorious principle that, quote, all men are created equal. These paradoxes warrant sober reflection and further study. We should steer clear of the excesses of either patriotic apologetics or iconoclastic destruction. The founders, including Jefferson, were hardly pristine saints, but maybe we aren't either. Well, hey, Apostiage listeners, this is your host, Josh McNall. We're back for another episode at the Frontier of Theology, Culture, and the Church. And that quote, which I'm not sure I did justice to, is from our guest today, Dr. Thomas Kidd, who is a historian teaching now at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're talking about his new book, Thomas Jefferson, A Biography of Spirit and Flesh. So welcome, Dr. Kidd. Thanks for having me. I was telling uh, I was telling you before we started recording. I think you're our first historian on the podcast, and so uh, I'm venturing into territory specifically in terms of early uh, North American history, which is not my area of specialization. So you're free to correct all of my uh, misstatements <laughs> or, or mistakes. Okay. <laughs> I I I wanted to to interview you because I, I really enjoyed the biography. I finished it a few weeks ago and I thought the listeners would, um, I thought they would be interested as well, but I thought maybe a place to start would be at the end with Jefferson's gravestone and uh, the inscription on his gravestone. It says, author of the Declaration of American Independence, of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom, and father of the University of Virginia. And you write about how Jefferson kind of had a hand. He crafted that. He wanted it to say those words. There's no mention of president of the United States. <laughs> right. Which I think most more recent presidents, they probably would not have omitted that part. <laughs> <laughs> what does Jefferson's gravestone tell us about, about the man? Well, uh, Jefferson is uh, definitely a man of ideas. And I think that that, I mean, it's not as if people would forget that he was president <laughs> by him not putting it on his gravestone. So there, there's obviously a kind of stylized move there, maybe uh, just running towards humility. But, but I, I think it's it's sincere that he he thought uh, that maybe his intellectual and uh, you, you know 
ideologically based political uh, accomplishments, such as the Virginia Statute for Religious Liberty in the 1780s, would be you know his most enduring accomplishments. I don't think that Jefferson. I, I think he honestly didn't think that, you know, political officials, even the president, necessarily had the most uh, enduring effect on on American society. Um, and and when you think about it, I mean, uh, the, definitely, I think one of Jefferson's most uh, unalloyed great accomplishments was his championing of religious liberty. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, as a Baptist, I mean that that is especially precious that that he, along with many uh, sectarian groups and, and including Baptists, were fighting for religious liberty at, at the time, um, and and. The, his bill for establishing religious freedom in Virginia was a landmark moment in that in that fight. Um, but y- you know, Declaration of Independence, he was was on its way at that time to being seen as a fixture of you know the the American identity, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and but Jefferson campaigned, as it were, to make it make it so. Um, and then you know, the University of Virginia, I think, was was one of the accomplishments that he had that um, it it was kind of rare, actually, for Jefferson to take something, especially institutionally, from a sort of framing concept to practice reality. Um, And uh, UVA has got to be right at the top of that list of among his greatest accomplishments. Now, that's UVA was also a step in the direction of secularizing American Mm -hmm. religion, um, and so Christians might have some ambivalence ab- about that. But in terms of influence on what American higher education uh, has become, like UVA is, is just a huge moment. So I, I think that those, you know, those are good choices mm-hmm. um, and in, some, in, in their way have more lasting legacy even than his presidency. Yeah. Well, the first line in your book is that you know, this is a biography of a brilliant but troubled person. And you talk a lot about the paradoxes. Uh, some of the hypocrisy or the contradictions that exist within Jefferson's character. Um, Yours is a biography. There are a lot of biographies of Jefferson, obviously, but yours is a biography of his moral universe, his his spiritual life. Why did you want to write about that specifically? Um, There are several reasons. I mean, one is that I, I think we're in a cultural moment uh, where we are having a really hard time knowing what to do with people like Jefferson. Um, and uh, we we do tend, as you suggested in your opening comments, that we, we tend to go to one extreme or another, either of canceling people like Jefferson because of their manifest uh, failings and, and even sins, um, or we go to the other extreme of being kind of unwilling to even talk about or countenance mm-hmm. discussion of their of their faults, and you know, in some cases, you know, school boards and so forth are wanting to, to just eliminate that kind of talk uh, and mm-hmm. shelter our school children from that. And I, I think both extremes are unwise. Um, so, in, in a way, I'm trying to look at Jefferson's moral universe just to try to understand as much as we can uh, where he's coming from. And I, I mean, th- those contradictions uh, are. are are led obviously by the contradiction over his uh, involvement with slavery mm-hmm. um, and ownership of hundreds of people as slaves, um, and and then it goes further than that because of his 
longstanding sexual relationship with Sally Hemings, uh, his enslaved woman, that that we as have proven that as much as we scientifically can prove it uh, mm-hmm. now that that happened. Um, but there are other manifest contradictions. I think I think with Jefferson, his view of Christianity is is uh, really central to the book. Um, he definitely considers himself a, a Christian of of a sort, mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, it is not a kind of Christian that that most uh, traditional Christians would recognize at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's basically an entirely sort of ethical and moral Christian setting aside virtually all supernatural claims about about Jesus in particular, but uh, also about the Bible generally. Um, and this this many of your listeners will have at least heard of the Jefferson Bible, mm-hmm. uh, which which is Jefferson's cut and paste edition of the Gospels. It's not of the whole Bible. It's of, the, of just the Gospels. Um, and, and so, you know, on one hand, how do you, you, you think about how do we view this on one hand? He he really is quite an expert uh, in the Bible for for a lay person. Um, and and he. Uh, reads through his adult life, not just the Bible, but uh, the New Testament in Greek. Uh, he also reads the the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, uh, as an adult, just for personal edification and mm-hmm. uh, as his own interest. So, so you know, he's not like some of our skeptics, popular skeptics today, who don't seem to know much of anything about Christianity or the Bible. <laughs> he, yeah. he he's really quite expert, um, but uh his christianity is just is just deeply unfamiliar to anybody who has any kind of sense of small orthodoxy mm-hmm. um and, and then uh, the the final contradiction is probably the one that's the least familiar which is that um he he is a a person who's constantly touting the value of frugality and a personal discipline mm-hmm. and this this is connected to his republican small republican ideology of the ideal of personal independence and virtue mm-hmm. um that is partly based on living within your means and he the way he lives is the absolute complete grotesque opposite of that yeah um he is a financial disaster a par excellence and 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 so um you, that's connected to his ideas about christianity virtue morality uh in obvious ways but it's also connected to slavery because you know if he was going to free his slaves uh it would have required enormous personal financial sacrifice and uh, even if he was disposed to do that he put himself in a position that he financially just could never consider emancipating his his slaves because he was so undisciplined. So even within all that, you see that this man is just a tangle of personal and ideological contradictions. Mm -hmm. And I think instead of just, you know, trashing him as a hypocrite, I mean, he is a hypocrite from a modern perspective, that's for sure. But I think it's more helpful to just sit with him and think about the different priorities and sort of how he got himself into all these really mm-hmm. complicated weird situations that seemed so profoundly to contradict what he said he believed well, i was talking with our history professor one of our history professors here at the university and i told her that i was interviewing her about jefferson and, and one of the things i said is i the reason i enjoyed the biography is that it steers clear of both of those sort of excesses that you mentioned the, the one on the one hand because of jefferson's sins and contradictions just to completely 
demonize or cancel him, so to speak. And on the other hand, what sometimes I've seen in in certain fundamentalist or evangelical circles, this attempt to to sort of save Jefferson and yes. come up with uh, what are oftentimes, at least in my opinion, I'm not a historian myself, some very poor historical arguments just to give your audience the kind of red meat that they want, which is, hey, all the founders were great, amazing Christians. And, you know, uh, and I appreciated that your book steered clear of of those of those excesses. One of the things I the epigraph, I'm, I kind of I love epigraphs, well-chosen epigraphs. And the first one you have is a quote from Jefferson. And he's talking about elite Virginians in 1785. And he says, I have thought them aristocratical, pompous, clannish, indolent, hospitable, and thoughtless in their expenses. And when I first read it, I thought, what's an interesting choice? What is that? How is that a fitting epigraph? And then as I read through, I was like, Oh, that's Jefferson. (laughs) (laughs) He's talking about himself, I think. (laughs) It wouldn't be the first time where the aspersions that we throw at others turn out to be kind of uh, accurate descriptions of ourselves, probably. But it turned out to be a great epigraph. Yeah, and I think it, it... It would be interesting to know what tone came along with that. I think Jefferson is is quite capable of criticizing, uh, you know, in in sincerity the 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 manners and mores of the class uh, that he represented of genteel Virginians, and and he knew that that he fell into that trap too. I mean, and he he talked regularly about. Uh, his his disastrous financial situation, and he clearly found it embarrassing. Uh, he knew that it contradicted what he he said he believed in, and he and he talked the same type of way uh, about about slavery, but but maybe a little more early in his life um, mm-hmm. that that he he was more open about just just candidly admitting that slavery is immoral, mm-hmm. um, and that it, 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 he wrote in notes on the state of Virginia that. Um, he even thought that slavery was going to bring down the the wrath of God on America, mm-hmm. which is a, a really unusual thing for Jefferson to say. Because I don't, yeah. you know, I don't know how much he thinks about God acting in a wrathful way towards nations, but uh, uh, that's that's what he says. And so there, there's one of the things that almost makes Jefferson more perplexing that he isn't necessarily as self-deluded as you might think. He just seems deeply unable in key parts of his life to act uh, in accord with what he says he he knows is right and wrong. Mm. I think the line, if I recall, I'm probably going to mangle it when he says, I tremble when I consider that God is just, or I yes. tremble when I, yes. I think on the fact that God is just, that there is a, a, a just punishment coming because of the evils of slavery. And yes. He seems aware of that, even as yes. he's immersed in it in that world. And uh, probably the most, I guess, salacious or famous part of Jefferson's biography is his relationship with Sally. And I think perhaps I had heard this, but it wasn't until reading your biography that I really grasped the fact that it wasn't just Sally wasn't just Jefferson's slave. Sally was, if I'm getting this correctly, Jefferson's half uh let's see step sister-in-law correct yeah it was his his wife's half sister uh yes, and, yes. And, and sally hemmings and, and martha jefferson uh, have the same father mm. um and we we think that uh sally hemmings probably looked a lot like uh martha 
mm-hmm. uh, which is is chilling in, in 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 a way when you when you think about what's going on there. Um, there there were a number of slaves, uh, you know, across uh, America who uh, looked more like a quote white person uh, than 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 a black person, and and that was uh, evidence. Uh, as in the case of Sally Hemings, of uh, the, the, that it was fairly common that uh, white masters and female slaves were having children together, and because the slaves' uh, status followed that of the mother, um, because it would be much more common to have a, a white man and a black mm-hmm. woman having sexual relations under those circumstances, uh, the the children that the the slave is having by by the master uh, would would then become slaves, mm. um, and so that that happens with Sally Hemings uh, and, and Sally Hemings' mother uh, is is an enslaved woman, and then and then uh, it's happening with uh, we we're almost certain with uh, Jefferson's children by Sally Hemings that they then mm. become slaves. Now now he does uh, free some of those children. Um, a couple he just lets run away and makes no attempt to to get them back, mm. uh, and then a couple of them he frees in his his will. Um, but but uh, they're they're among the very few of his slaves that he ever uh, mm-hmm. uh, grants their freedom. So it makes it even more conspicuous about well why you know there's hundreds of slaves why mm-hmm. these children of Sally Hemings yeah and it, and it seems that they're they're his children. Yeah, it adds another level to the sort of generational moral, uh, just the evil of of slavery. That this is not just a slave; yes. this is your wife's half sister, because uh, Martha's father was the previous owner of of Sally's family. And uh, yeah. you mentioned the night I think it's nineteen ninety eight uh, DNA study in the journal Nature, which sort of confirmed, at least insofar as we can confirm it, that Jefferson indeed did father. Um, these children um, through Sally. How old was Sally when she went to France with Jefferson's daughter? She was quite young, right? Yeah, she was in her mid-teens um, when she came to Paris, and and uh, she she uh, ended up being. I mean, it, it, Jefferson really didn't. I mean, he had owned her and her family uh, for some years at that point. But well, one of his daughters was coming to Paris, and she needed a traveling companion. Uh, and it just happened to be that uh, his family um, and and the people who were seeing his his slaves, uh, you know, picked Sally to come with his daughter. She was, I think, a few years older than his daughter at the time, but was picked to be an appropriate traveling companion. Mm-hmm. Um, but that put uh, Jefferson and Sally Hemings, uh, you know, he he maybe he had known her name before that, but but. Uh, um, you know, no personal relationship that we know of at, at all before that. But then then her coming to Paris puts her in very close proximity uh, in Jefferson's household to Jefferson himself, uh, just at the time she's going through puber- puberty and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, becoming uh, sexually uh, uh, attractive to him. And so, uh, but the, they're about, uh, he, he's in his mid-40s and she's in her mid-teens. So that's another uh, alarming to say the least, dynamic of of this the, of the extreme uh, age and power uh, difference between the two of them. Yeah. 
Well, you write, you talk about how the greatest, perhaps the greatest dilemma in Jefferson's thought may be the greatest dilemma in American history. And that is what he meant by all men in that famous phrase, all men are created equal. And I've often wondered that myself. Does he mean all human beings? Does he mean all white males who own property? Jefferson's men, you say, in men in in quotes, were Anglo-American political men, meaning white male property holders, in short, men like Jefferson. And do you think that's that's the best way to think about that phrase? Or does is Jefferson have some sort of idealistic uh, idea behind it? Or how how should we understand that that famous sort of canonical phrase in the declaration? Well, I think it operates at least two different levels. I mean, there's one is the immediate reference, uh, w- which is to the men that you just described. I mean, it's it's political men. It's it's the men who are involved in the controversy between Britain and America in 1776. And so that that who is who that is addressed to. And so when you think about the Declaration, I mean, uh we may forget it. it is a political document first mm-hmm. and foremost. It is serving a political purpose in 1776, which is to uh, motivate American political men to support the revolution, so mm-hmm. to support independence. Um, the The problem is is that Jefferson chooses to use the language of equality by or common creation by God. Mm. Um, and uh, that that is a very smart rhetorical move because it it is widely agreed upon in 1776 that our, our most fundamental basis of equality is our common creation by God. Mm-hmm. And you know people might have different views about uh, you know Genesis one and two about uh, you know the cre- how humankind was created. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think Jefferson believes in say a literal Adam and Eve. Um, but even Jefferson would have thought, well, I mean, God created us somehow. I mean, you know, this is mm-hmm. this is a pre-Darwinian world. I mean, so we're not you know, wrangling with evolution and all of its theological implications. Mm-hmm. And so uh, even Jefferson figures, well, so, you know, somehow or other God created us. And if that's true, then he created us equal mm-hmm. um, because, because, you know, God is behind, you know, our, the, the, the reason for our existence. Um, and there are other ways that Jefferson could have put that. Um, it, it really is quite striking uh, how bold the language of the Declaration of Independence is compared to some alternatives. I mean, the, the Virginia Declaration of Rights had been adopted that Jefferson did not write um, in, in a, about a month before the Declaration of Independence. And that said uh, that all men are by nature equal. Mm. Um you know, which which is also a widely assumed uh, precept at the time, but it doesn't have the same oomph. No, <laughs> it, you, you know, I mean, what you can say, well, what's nature like? What mm-hmm. you know, that doesn't sound very specific. Yeah. So you see the agency of God um, mm-hmm. in all men are created equal, and they're endowed by their Creator. So you have an active verb, endowed mm-hmm. by their Creator um, with rights, uh, and 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 that's a much better phrasing um yeah. in and Jefferson I think would have meant basically the same thing as you know by nature in saying that but it, it's it's much more powerful rhetorically mm-hmm. and it's more theologically specific mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so um, if, if you take the traditional Christian view of our common, having a common creation by God in, in, a, in you know, the, the biblical sense of, of, you know, Adam and Eve uh, being created by God, then that, that's a single unitary origin of the human race. Um, then it has inescapable uh, mm-hmm. implications that are universal. Mm-hmm. And and that is definitely not revisionist history, you know, just looking back on it at the time, because there were um, slaves and former slaves who, within months of the promulgation of the Declaration of Independence, who were saying, oh, well, all men are created equal, huh? well, then we shouldn't be slaves. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and you can just imagine Jefferson saying, no, 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 that's <laughs> not what we're talking about right now. But, but it opens Pandora's box, as yeah. it were, to... Yeah. You know, to give people ideas about, uh, you know, Lemuel Haynes, an African American pastor in New England at the time, uh, uh, you know, wrote a pamphlet called "Liberty Further Extended," mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, and he and he says, "Look, the 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 implication and he, the epigraph. Speaking of epigraphs, yeah. is all men are created equal, and and he yeah. says, you know, the the implication of that is universal." Yeah. So uh, I, I think that Jefferson definitely made the right decision rhetorically, but it, as it were, he sort of got himself into trouble by yeah. using that language of equality by creation. Jefferson reminds me of, in some ways, he reminds me of Abraham Lincoln in the ability to tap into the biblical stockpile of imagery and language to choose rhetorically the most powerful way of saying something, you know, and, and you know, un, un, inarguably an incredible writer and, and framer of language. What do you think was Jefferson's greatest gift as a politician, his greatest, you know, ability or strength? He, he, he was a brilliant yet troubled person. Brilliant is that first word. What was his greatest strength? Well, I mean, I think his his greatest strength is also sometimes his greatest weakness, which is that he is, uh, you know, reminiscent of your sort of ivory tower intellectual. I mean, he's titanically brilliant, um, but he has, I think, so many ideas and um, concepts and, you know, inventions and, and and politically, especially about about the way things could be run in an ideal world that I think he tends towards impracticality. Mm. Um, uh, and, and, and like I said, I mean, UVA is a great counterexample to that. But um, he he uh, definitely is at times is not a very effective administrator, either as the governor of Virginia or the president of the United States. Um, it, it, his presidency, I think, is a it, is a mixed bag. Uh, the, it, like a, a lot of two term presidents, his first term is very good and his second term is very bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and and at the at the very end of his presidency, it, it is it is utterly disastrous mm-hmm. uh, because of some very bad economic policies that he adopted. But, um, you know, I, I think he he tends to be very bound by uh, theories Mm-hmm. Um, some of which do not match up with each other, and 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 he just can't get reconciled in in his brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so yeah, I I think I mean I'm I'm an academic myself, so I can identify with this. I mean, <laughs> you, you know that that sometimes we we just think in this ethereal 
it, you know, level, but, but then some things have to actually be run and, uh-huh. you know, and, and executed yeah. and so forth. And, and, and so he's not always that, that great, but, but I think it's even more acute really in his personal life yeah. that he, he just can't sort of get his act together, mm-hmm. uh, especially financially. Um, and, and he can just never live within his means. And he, it just, I mean, he, he does keep detailed financial records, um, <laughs> but they don't ever seem to get him to act in an appropriate yeah. way. And so, you know, he'll. I he'll, can relate to that. I have a lot of post-it notes around yeah. my office that tell me things I need to do. And that, yeah, you know. I mean, he he keeps meticulous track of the <laughs> bottles of wine that he's buying and so yeah. forth. And 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 you just look at him and you think, well, then you need to stop <laughs> importing all this wine from France for heaven's sake. Yeah. Stop. You know, but, just, but, just counting how many you're ordering. Is not going right. to pay for it? He, yeah. he, 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 he doesn't seem to be able to stop. Hey, Apple Seattle listeners, maybe you're not interested in a four-year degree at Oklahoma Wesleyan University, but maybe you are interested in sharpening your professional resume with in-demand job skills. OKWU Pro is a new program to earn certificates and badges to make your mark and add to your professional resume. We have over 350 training courses in things like agile management, cybersecurity, creativity and innovation, data analytics, nonprofit management, women in business, and many, many more. For as little as $39, that's right, 39 bucks, Everyone can find a program that helps them learn new skills, earn more, and become more confident and marketable for promotions. We've sorted our certificate programs into a number of different topic areas to make it easier for you to find the programs you're looking for. So if you're interested, just go to okwu.edu pro. That's okwu.edu pro. Well, I want to come back to Jefferson and Jesus because he has a lot to say about Jesus, but I wanted to do kind of a fun lightning round. And so this will be a little bit, a little bit off topic. We often do a lightning round. Okay. Um, You mentioned, you know, the, the success of the blockbuster Broadway musical Hamilton and how that has brought Jefferson back into the public consciousness, albeit through singing and dancing and things like that. So I, since I'm talking to a real historian for the first time on here of American history, what does Hamilton get right? And what does it get <laughs> wrong either with regard to Jefferson? And I mean, once we move past the rapping and the singing and the, the casting, what does it get right? And what does it get wrong? Oh, I mean, I think you have to take Hamilton. Uh, and I, I'm not a groupie about, about Hamilton. So I, I'll just preface this by saying that. Um, I actually, uh, before I answer your question, the the, the uh, my my son, uh, we we were going to watch it on a Fourth of July or something like that when it when it came available on Disney Plus, and uh, m- m- when when they were doing a lot of singing at the very beginning and rapping and all this, my son, uh, who's a teenager, he said, "Is this all singing?" <laughs> <laughs> and I, I I said, "Yeah, it's a musical," and he walked out of the room and never came back. <laughs> So I, I have failed as an educator father. He but, wanted it to uh, be it, like one of your books. That's what he wanted. <laughs> so uh, I don't think so. But uh, anyway, um, no, I, I think if you take Hamilton for what it is, uh, which is obviously not, I mean, it's not even pretending to be sort of a yeah. a factual retelling. 
Uh, I, th I think it's solid. I mean, I, I think it gets the themes right. I think it gets the tensions right. I think it's mm -hmm. it, it's uh, it's well worth watching. And yeah. so, I mean, uh, that, that you know, given that I often find it quite painful to watch uh, historical movies mm -hmm. that I know something about the time period, yeah. uh, I, I actually really liked watching uh, Hamilton, and, and it's just wonderful on the Hamilton Jefferson relationship. So I, I yeah. recommend it un unreservedly. Well, all right, next question, lightning round. If you had to pick one founder to do the following things, I'm going to throw out some things and you can give me your founder of choice. Uh, to manage your finances, to marry your daughter, supposing that you had a daughter, uh, to entertain dinner guests with, I suppose, just fun stories or personality, and then finally to deliver your eulogy or to preach your funeral. And you don't have to answer all of those. Who would you, uh, any any names come to mind for manage your finances, marry your daughter, entertain dinner guests, or deliver your eulogy? Um. On the on managing finances, it would not be Jefferson. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I I think I might pick Ben Franklin mm -hmm. um, because he he among the major founders um, is is probably the most um, wealthy and and uh, especially because he came out of a, an impoverished background. It's quite striking. I mean, Hamilton may have more money because he married into wealth. Mm. Um, but in terms of money that he made, I, I think Franklin is is I mean, he's just a brilliant yeah. businessman. Yeah. Uh, so so he does very well on that. I think Franklin, too, for uh, who I would like to just have dinner with or have a, a uh -huh. beer with or something. I mean, yeah. I, he, he he's just a you know, I mean, he's. I did a biography of Franklin too that was similar to the to the Jefferson biography. It was you know a religious moral biography, and 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 a difference between Franklin and Jefferson is that Franklin's just very cheerful, mm. uh, where Jefferson is not. Um, and I, I mean, I think Jefferson is capable of having a good time, but it it doesn't come easy to him because mm. uh, he's so serious and so. Uh, you, you know, intense where, where Franklin is brilliant, but in a very cheerful way. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, with, with Jefferson, it's, it's relatively easy. It's complicated, but it's relatively easy, for instance, to pin him down, uh, especially in his, his later years about what he believed religiously, mm -hmm. where to Franklin, um, you know, kind of everything's a joke. I mean, I, he, you know, he, everything he says about religion, especially later in life, He's probably trying to make a joke about it. Mm -hmm. So you know, you're like, "Well, is he serious?" I don't, I don't. But he's a lot of fun. I think to yeah. uh, to be around. Um, you know, I don't have a daughter, so so maybe this is that makes the, that an easier question to answer. But um, I, I sure admire Washington. Um, among the major founders, I probably admire Washington the most in for, in terms of just a man who I I, I think you know he's not perfect, but he. Mm -hmm. He really try, does try to live by his word and uh, in in ways that that Jefferson just patently does not and cannot. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and 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 so Washington, I think, is it, you know among all the major founders, he's one that I, I really do find quite admirable mm -hmm. um, in in terms of just his personal integrity and leadership. So so he he would probably be one that I, if I had a daughter. I, 
be proud of that. And then to deliver a, a rousing funeral eulogy or oration, a great sort of uh, orator or speaker or any choice well, there? I, yeah, I mean, I did a biography of Patrick Henry, uh, and he obviously is is the great orator of the of the revolution. But he's also among, I mean, he's sort of tier one B among the the major founders. He's not quite at the top, but uh, among the you know the say the ten major founders that we discuss, he he's probably along with maybe John Jay is uh, the the most serious Christian. Mm. Um, and so, uh, I would want a Christian giving my eulogy. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> uh, that, that, so that would be both because of the brilliance of his oratory and also because of his personal religious convictions. I think yeah. I would probably pick Patrick Henry. Yeah. So managing finances, we've got Ben Franklin, marrying your daughter. We got George Washington entertaining get dinner guests. Um, maybe Ben, Ben Franklin again, and then Patrick Henry delivering the yeah. We're living the funeral. Well, since we're talking about a Christian delivering your funeral uh, eulogy, let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about Jefferson and Jesus. Um, one of the things that I found interesting, I was flipping all the way through the biography again last night, and Jefferson has great respect for the moral teachings of Jesus. Once we cut out some of the supernatural elements and the, you know, things like that. And yet one of the things that struck me last night was, you know, Jesus has so much to say about nonviolence, about, you know, not you know, turning the other cheek. And, you know, Jesus refuses to foment a violent revolt against the religious or political establishment of his day. And yet Jefferson, uh, you know, seemingly never met a revolution he didn't like, at least, you know, when we're talking about the French Revolution, he says incredible things like basically it's okay if everybody dies and we're left with just one Adam and Eve, the revolution will have been worth it, you know. And and so that was my question. How does Jefferson have so much respect for the moral teachings of Jesus on the one hand, and yet he does not seem to equate Jesus's words on violence uh, with, he doesn't seem to take them on board or take them into account. Does, is that just because of his, for lack of a better word, hypocrisy, or does he bracket that off in some other category? How does he ignore Jesus on, on violence? That's a great question. I, I, I think that, um, he, it seems to me that he, uh, there's always a disjunction on on lots of ethical issues. I I, I don't really see uh, obvious instances where Jefferson says I should act this way because it's in accord with what Jesus taught. I mean, in terms of applying it to himself. Um, and and again, the difference with Franklin, I, I think, is conspicuous in the sense that Franklin also considered it. Uh, Franklin and Jefferson have fairly similar religious views. Um, and so, so Franklin actually, for a time in his life, kept a list of virtues um, that that were partly inspired by Christianity. Um, he, he had this famous you know, aphorism, imitate Socrates and Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, which seems pretty good, uh, but but he he actually would sort of keep track about how virtuous he had been, which, which mm -hmm. is a little potentially prideful thing to do. But never, nevertheless, he's you know kind of checking off the box. I was honest mm -hmm. today. I would yeah. you know I was kind today mm -hmm. and 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 temperate and th those sorts of things. 
I just don't see Jefferson having that kind of view. I think I think his admiration for Jesus's ethics, um, including, I mean, I would say he he probably agrees with Jesus's teachings on on violence, but but I suspect he would only apply it in like interpersonal mm-hmm. relations, not relations between uh, states and and nations. That that would probably be his excuse on 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 that. But he's so philosophical um, in his, you know, I think his interest is a lot, you know, in theory, what moral system would benefit the world the most if it was fully recognized and implemented? And um, he, for for his early adulthood, he, he thinks that it would be a combination of the ancient uh, Greek and Roman philosophers and and Jesus too, but but then he he comes to believe um, by the early 1800s, by the time he's president, that Jesus actually has the superior uh, ethical system. But it's mostly because of Jesus's ethic of of agape love, uh, yeah. of you know sacrificial love for your neighbor, um, and, which obviously would include a nonviolent uh, ethic. Too, but but he's he's really more focused on uh, his his transformation is that the, the Greek philosophers that he admires like Epicurus, uh, the you know Epicurean philosophy, yeah. uh, they're almost only focused on one's interior life mm-hmm. um, and how you can, for instance, maintain tranquility, which is you know it's not indulgence but it's tranquility. That's the mm-hmm. the key value of the Epicurean system. Um, and and he says, but but Jesus mastered our relationships with with others, mm. um, and so that that's to him what makes Jesus's ethics superior. But I think he would he would really apply that almost exclusively to just interpersonal yeah. Uh, yeah. relationships, and not the, I I you know I don't know that he thought very much about how Christian ethics applies to. Uh, the affairs of of nation states and nations yeah. yeah and it reminds me of the inscription i think on the, one of my favorite parts was your description of the giant cheese uh, that was <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, there was a group of i think it was a group of baptist ladies who yes. gave jefferson the giant cheese and inscribed on it was uh, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to god i think yes and uh, i thought well that's an interesting encapsulation of uh, <laughs> I mean, you think about Romans 13 and other passages where it's like, I don't, you know, but that it fit with Jefferson's worldview. It's a little bit harder to uh, fit it sometimes with the biblical claims yeah. about, uh, you know. Yeah. And Franklin should... loved that saying, too. In fact, I think Franklin coined it. But, um, you know, uh, it, it is difficult to sync up the the patriot cause uh and and even more so the French Revolution with uh with passages like Romans 13 or you know first Peter or honor the king. Um mm-hmm. uh but uh one thing that I've I've realized in in the past 10 years or so, especially from a, a book by James Byrd called Sacred Scripture, Sacred War, is that the Patriots were actually directly engaging regularly with Romans 13. Um, I would have thought they would have avoided it mm-hmm. uh, and just not talked about it. But they actually did have. Um, and, and so that they would say, well, look, I mean, uh, th- there's all kinds of examples in the Bible of resisting unjust authority. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and and they of course are not that they would explain we're not trying to overthrow the British government. Uh, we're trying to establish independence here from a tyrannical government that that they won't let us go. And so in in effect, they justify it as a defensive war in a moral cause. Now, you, you may not still agree with that, but I, I guess I that sort of changed my opinion on that that issue a little bit because I think I uh, before I read Bird's book, I, I would have thought, well, they're they're just not even paying attention to mm-hmm. the biblical commands not to revolt against the government. Mm-hmm. Um, but but they actually did. They they just you know <laughs> they they thought they had ways to interpret that that would excuse uh, revolution in in seventeen seventy six. Well, as a professor, I think there have been times where my students have wanted to inscribe that on uh, maybe not a wheel of cheese, yeah, but yeah, on right. Some... <laughs> Right. <laughs> and that's actually where I wanted to end today. You're an educator. You just moved to, to Kansas City, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. You're also a historian. Um, where I thought we would conclude is the reason to study history. Um, obviously, it's something that many of us love. It's not something where for many parents, if their son or daughter came to them and said, mom or dad, I'm going to be a historian. Uh, I know a lot of parents would be like, well, I don't, I don't think that's a great choice. Uh, why do we need to study history carefully? And how can a careful reading of history that avoids both of those excesses that I mentioned at the beginning, this sort of like uh, blind patriotic distortion and this on the other hand this sort of total rejection of anything uh, and anyone uh, from a different time period uh, you know because of their sins because of their faults um how can history serve the church in in this day and age i think that's something you're passionate about and i'm sure you have thoughts on it is i mean i i i think that as i said we're we're having a really hard time right now both in american culture at large and also in the church about knowing what to do with people including people like jefferson who you know 30 40 50 years ago would have been much more sort of universally praised and and admired in america but now um, appropriately, I think we've become much more sensitive, uh, particularly about the legacy of slavery in America, um, and that that has brought into question some heroes of the church, uh, you, you know, who in, in America were were slave owners and and, and v- across various denominations, um, including obviously the Southern Baptist Convention, um, and, and so um, I, I think we're we're struggling with that, and and so that that that's. Uh, the reality of our moment, but, but I would still definitely recommend, uh, history. I mean, it's, it's, you know, any history you read of something that you're attached to, whether it's the church or, uh, American history, it's, it's partly like reading your own autobiography about, because, you know, all the structures, every religious, political, social, cultural structures everywhere around us were built up over time. We got here somehow, mm. uh, and it's always worth understanding uh, where we came from and how we got here. Um, and that's particularly true, I think, in the church. Um, you know, we're we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, as Hebrews says. And I, I think it's to the extent that I mean, we can't know everything, but it, to to the extent that we can, we honor uh, the you know the, the legacy of uh, you know Wesleyans or Baptists who whoever 
by understanding what they did. And there are people that I, you know, in in those Christian denominational traditions that will, we still will find to be wholly admirable and and not perfect. I mean, there's only one perfect person that we'll find in history, certain carpenter's son from Nazareth. Uh, but but uh, so that's not the standard. But we will be challenged, uh, encouraged, uh, chastened by, you know, if this person made such great sacrifices for uh, missions or for the church or whatever, whatever, you know, why, why am I not doing <laughs> what I can? And uh, so that that's very useful. Um, but it, it also chastens us uh, in terms of you see uh, someone like Jefferson and you think, oh, he, you know, he, he accomplished such great things, but in, in many ways he personally was a, a failure. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and how do we sort that out? I mean, and, and how do we, you know, keep a, keep an eye out for our own hypocrisy and, and, and also not, you know, falling into, to supporting, you know, political leaders who are hypocrites them, themselves. And I mean, that, so there, there are, you know, potentially contemporary applications, but, but, you know, I think I, I'm, I'm really, um, troubled about the way that our culture, I think we tend to tout our own virtue by denouncing the right people in the past. Mm-hmm. That's a, and that's a pretty paltry form of virtue, I think. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think instead it would be better to just be sober um, and, and study and think and and reflect on what it means that you know our national identity is built on somebody like Jefferson. It's not. It's not to trash Jefferson. It's to commend the great things about him, the great things that he, you know, accomplished, but also to be really sober about the terrible things mm-hmm. that he did personally. Um, and I, I just think that, that it, for a Christian, that's a more appropriate type of response to just reflect on what that says about me, what that says about human nature and what that says about our, our world. Um, and, and so somewhere in that, I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously more art than science, but somewhere within that is what I think is a great and enduring value of studying history. Yeah. Well, I want to commend you, Dr. Kidd, for your work. And I, I found it to be a great, just exemplar of that attitude of sober mindedness to recognize both the virtue and the vice yeah, vices in the folks we study in our history. And uh, if, if you're interested, uh, Dr. Kidd has more books than I could mention, but he mentioned already his book on Benjamin Franklin, The Religious Life of a Founding Father, his book, Who is an Evangelical? The History of a Movement in Crisis, has a book on George Whitfield, a couple books on The Great Awakening, and then, of course, the book that we've been talking about today, Thomas Jefferson, A Biography of Spirit and Flesh. So, Tommy, thanks for joining us on Outpost Theology, and thanks for all you do. Thanks for having me, Josh.